Well, I see several of y'all are joining in with us tonight, so thank you for joining in on our Wednesday night Bible study on the book of Revelation. Uh, as we say each week, if you can hear me, make sure you make a comment. Uh, I appreciate you joining in tonight. We've already got about five or six or so that are joining in with us. I've uh, been looking forward to this Bible study tonight, hoping we can make a lot of progress as we go through this study of the book of Revelation. Um, thank each of you for joining in. I'm, I'm looking on my monitor away from my phone to see uh, some that are joining in with us now. I can't mention everybody by name, but I certainly appreciate each of you. I see Linda uh, said, good evening, Pastor Ben. Good evening to you, Linda. Uh, see, Aluna says hello. Thank you, Aluna, for watching. Uh, Sheila's now joined in with us. Sharon uh, Brigman, uh, Charles is joining in. Jared, uh, thank all of you for joining in on another Wednesday night as we go through the book of Revelation. Uh, I've only got a little more than an hour or so of time, so uh, we're going to get right into this tonight. I've got a couple announcements before we get into our study of Revelation, and of course we're going to open in a word of prayer here in just a moment. Uh, thank again all of you for joining in for your comments. I'll try to read those here in a little bit when our, our service tonight is over. Uh, but uh, I want to say first of all, we've got a lot of rain coming through our area, and apparently we got more even coming tomorrow. As we said last week, I say again tonight, if by chance I lose the broadcast, if, uh, if this is dropped, uh, then I'll try to get it uploaded as quickly as I can on my, my page again. So if you see that it's, it's kind of locked up, you can refresh your page. That could be it, but if I've been dropped, then I'll try to get it going again just as quickly as possible tonight. Uh, also, um, I want to say a word of appreciation for all your prayers on behalf of our family. Uh, as most of you know, our nephew was uh, tragically murdered last week uh, in the Charlotte area, 15 years old. And so we did not have a Bible study last week. Uh, we've been involved with the family the past week and, of course, the service, the funeral, viewing, and all of that. So continue to remember uh, my wife's family, the Kachigan family, in your prayers tonight. Uh, they certainly need those prayers being sent their way. Uh, and I'll be honest, I'm human, I'm flesh, and some things kind of aggravate me a little bit. And I see in the news a lot about a story, I believe it's out in Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, about a, uh, a man that was killed tragically by some police officers, and he was black, and police officers are white. I'll be very careful what I say and how I say it tonight. But one thing that always aggravates me is when we have a, a black-on-white crime, like with my nephew, uh, there's nothing in the news about it. People just brush it off. But when there's a white-on-black crime, we see it all over the news. Both are tragic. Both are unfortunate. And uh, we don't want anybody to have to go through these things. But let's don't get all tied up and wrapped up in the, uh, the racism that we see so much prevalent right now on both sides in the news. Um, a life was taken, whether it's somebody you know or somebody you don't know. And we want to lift up those families in prayer. So please keep my family in prayer if you would tonight. We've also been enjoying our time with my uh, mom and dad and my sister have been with us for the first time since we moved to North Carolina. And so we're thankful to spend some time with them. They're here with us uh, again tonight. And so I appreciate you uh, watching my dad preach Sunday. Uh, make sure if you haven't seen his message Sunday, you go back and look on my page and, uh, and see his message and my mom singing and uh, make sure you listen to that and share it with some of your friends that you may have that would like to be blessed of the Lord with that message, because I'm sure they will, as he talked about that Ebenezer stone. Uh, we've got some uh, some announcements coming up. Uh, Watch of the week, I believe, 
unless something changes, we may be back in the church building this coming Sunday. I've got a meeting with the deacons tonight, so we'll be discussing that. Uh, but I know certainly we'll be back in the church building next Wednesday night. And I'm going to continue to live stream our services, even though I'll be in the sanctuary. So uh, even though we'll be in there, I see Susie, my daughter, just uh, said she's watching. So hey, Susie. Uh, and Natasha. But we'll be uh, meeting back in the sanctuary, continuing our broadcast. So if you don't have a church and you want to tune in with us, certainly you can do that then. Uh, but if you do attend your own church and we want to encourage you to do so on Sundays and Wednesdays, then at least you'll be able to see these uh, Bible studies and share them with others uh, and watch them yourself after the services. Uh, so keep that in your prayers as well. Uh, so we'll be making some announcements about that after our meeting tonight. And I'll be putting that up on Facebook. But thank you for all you've been doing throughout this quarantine. Uh, I started this uh, when all the quarantine started. And we were told we couldn't go back in our church building. And didn't know if I'd have anybody watch or, or nobody watch. And uh, it's just blossomed and bloomed. And I, I thank you for all that have supported it throughout this time that we've been in quarantine. Uh, but I'm hoping I can keep this going even beyond tonight. And beyond this month that we've been uh, without our own church building to meet. So again, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. I hope you have your Bible with you tonight, uh, a pen, paper, whatever you use to take notes. As we're going to be back in Revelation. Uh, and first of all, let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you have any prayer requests tonight that you want to be mentioned and you don't mind that being uh, public knowledge, you can put that in the comments section below. And if it's something that's personal that you'd rather not other people know, you can certainly message me privately. And we want to be lifting you up in prayer uh, tonight as best as we can. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this time. Lord, I want to thank you tonight that we can spend this moment uh, in this uh, study of the book of Revelation. Lord, I can't emphasize enough the significance and the importance of studying your word. And Lord, I just pray that for all of those that are joining in now or that may join in at a later point, that you might open up to them the word of God. Teach us your word as you'd have us to know it and understand it. And I pray, Lord, as a preacher and as a teacher of your word tonight, that you might guide me and lead me and instruct me. Lord, I pray for wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that you might teach me your word and that I might be able to use it to teach others your word as well. Father, you promised a special blessing just for hearing this book and reading it and studying it. So we want to uh, not only do that tonight, but we want to receive that blessing. So may you bless every person that came seeking that blessing tonight. And Father, I pray continued prayers for my family. Lord, that you might be with them. I, I just pray that you'd be with, uh, with Olga tonight and Sasha and uh, all of Aluna's family tonight. May you just bring them the comfort and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Thank you, Lord, for the prayers of your people tonight that have been sent our way this past week. And Lord, as we get ready to, to turn a page and to begin a new chapter in our ministries as our churches are going back inside once again, we just pray that we'd never go back in and have churches typical or as usual or as normal. But I pray for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit, a special awakening uh, of uh, your Holy Spirit within our members, Lord, whether our own local body here at Mountain Springs Baptist Church or wherever those may be that listen in. May you just pour out your spirit upon us, God, and move us in a great way because, Lord, I believe that we are living in the last days. And, Lord, I pray now that you bless all the needs among your people as we study your word tonight together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for tuning in tonight. Uh, and uh, we'll get right into the Word of God. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We went through the last two weeks, kind of an introduction of Revelation. Got into some of chapter number 1, about three quarters of it last week. I'm going to finish up just a couple of verses or thoughts about chapter 1 tonight and get right into chapter 2. 
you remember, chapter 2 and chapter 3 deal with these seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation. So look back in Revelation chapter 1, though, in verse 16. And he had in his right hand, speaking about the description of the Lord, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Uh, verse number 15 and, and 16, uh, really verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, is describing uh, the description of the Lord. If you were to see him tonight, this is how he would appear to you. He wouldn't look like the lowly Nazarene or the, uh, the lowly Galilean anymore. Uh, he's in all of his glory, uh, his transfigured glory, as he appears to John. And as John sees him with his, his head in his hair, white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes as a flame of fire, his feet like the brass as if they burn in a furnace, his voice is the sound of many waters, and all these descriptions about Jesus Christ. He says in verse number 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars. I want to stop for a moment and talk about those stars because he describes those stars in verse number 20. And a star in the Bible is not always a planetary object. It's not always just like the, the gaseous uh, planetary object like we think of our star uh, in our uh, solar system or the stars we see in the night sky. Sometimes stars and angels are used interchangeably. That's why there's a lot of mystery surrounding the wise men that followed the star to where Jesus was born in Matthew. Uh, was it an actual star? Well, if it was a star the size of our sun, and our sun, they tell us, is kind of a small star compared to most suns that are out there and stars that are out there, it'd be kind of strange for uh, an object the size of our sun or larger traveling uh, to where Jesus was born. More than likely, that is a description of an angel, because angels and stars are used interchangeably in the Bible. Uh, and so much so that uh, we see Hollywood tries to mimic and copy the Bible. Uh, we know, as we talked about some of our other studies, about how the, the devil's a counterfeiter, how he's a copycat, and he co copies and counterfeits anything that God says or does. Well, as God has stars that are angels, uh, we know out in Hollywood, which means Hollywood, uh, right next to that is Los Angeles, the city of angels. Uh, and uh, we see that place is a place where uh, if you want to be famous, you're called a movie star. If you're really famous, they give you a star on the Walk of Fame or whatever they call it there. Uh, uh, and so you can be in Hollywood, you can be a movie star near the city of angels, and you can have a star on your dressing room. Uh, that represents who you are. They can't get away from the Bible out in the lost world, especially with Hollywood. Uh, but in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible tells us that God made the stars also, almost as if, as if it's nothing, to make all of the billions and trillions of stars that are out there. God made them all. But the Bible also says that he knoweth every star by name, and they differ from one another in, in glory. Uh, we also know that the angels are innumerable, just like the stars uh, out in the sky. The Bible says that the host of heaven, the angels of God, are an innumerable host that is there. I'm not going to get into any angelology tonight, but I want you to be clear that the star in the Bible is not always a planetary type object like our sun in our solar system. Sometimes it's descriptive of angels. Uh, he also talks there about out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword in verse 16. 
Uh, that two-edged sword is defined for us in Hebrews 4 verse 12 and Ephesians 6 verse 17. And that is in fact the word of God. God's word is the two-edged sword. And the Bible says later on in Revelation that out of his mouth will proceed a sharp two-edged sword and with it he's going to smite the, uh, his enemies and the nations. The word of God is powerful. If you doubt the power of the word of God, just carry it with you anywhere you go. Uh, take it with you to the bank. Take it with you to the grocery store. Take it with you to school or to work or wherever. And watch people's reaction to the Bible versus their reaction to anything else. National Geographic or a magazine or a book or Harry Potter or anything else. They won't even blink. But you take the Bible. There's power in the Word of God. So he talks about as the sun, verse 16, shineth in his strength. Notice he refers to the sun in the masculine. He says within his strength, which in Greek and in Hebrew and other language, Russian and Spanish and other languages, uh, there is masculine and feminine words. They're not all the same neuter like in English. Uh, but in the Bible, there's, there's not only masculine and feminine words, but there's also symbolism between the words. And so that's why some words have a masculine and some words have a feminine connotation. For example, we see that in the description of Jesus Christ, like the S-U-N. Obviously, he's the S-O-N, but here he's referred to as the S-U-N. And so in the Old Testament, we see the, the picture of Jesus Christ as the S-U-N, not just the S-O-N. Look in the last book of your Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Look in Malachi chapter 4, in verse number 2, the last prophecy of the Old Testament in regards to the second coming of Jesus Christ is comparing Jesus Christ to that object we see almost every single day. We haven't seen it today here in, in North Carolina. It's been rainy. But every other day you see an object out there that is a visible witness and a visible testament to Jesus Christ himself. When you see the S-U-N, it is a type and a picture of the S-O-N. Look in Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament, in verse number 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the S-U-N, capital S, S-U-N of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And he talks about the day of the Lord in verse 3, 4, 5, 6. Talks about Moses, talks about Elijah. And he ends the Old Testament with a curse. Because the New Testament lifts that curse through Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us, according to Galatians, because he hung on the cross. And the Bible says, Cursed is anyone that hangeth upon a tree. Well, Jesus took the curse and became the sin curse for us uh, and lifted that curse through salvation in Jesus Christ alone. But the S-U-N is said to rise with healing in his wings. All the modern Bible correctors approach this text and they said it's a mistake. They always think the Bible is a mistake and they say it's a mistake, it's a mistranslation. So all the new translations have now changed the S-U-N to the S-O-N. It's not a mistake. They knew what they were talking about when they translated in our old King James Bible, Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, and described Jesus Christ prophetically as the S-U-N. Because the picture of the resurrection is found in the sun rising every day. 
The picture of the second coming is found in the sun rising every day. His wings, his wings, the sun is a picture and a type of, the, of Jesus Christ. The moon is a type of the church. Maybe we'll get into that later on. But the moon is always referred to in the feminine sense. But the sun in a masculine sense. Because the earth represents the earth. That's the world, the system of this lost world. He, uh, the Bible says that, uh, that the world comprehended him not. Uh, he came into his own, his own received him not. Uh, the Bible says he's the light of the world. The world is in darkness. But Jesus is the light of the world. He's the S-U-N of the world. Physically, spiritually, he's the S-U-N. The moon represents the church. The church has no light of our own. We merely reflect the light of the true light, which is the sun. The church reflects the true light, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into this dark world. So there's great symbolism that is there. Do you know that the sun is a trinity? Every time we see the sun or feel the sun, it's a trinity. Uh, they say that those that study the sun, the sun is primarily made up of three types of rays. Uh, alpha rays, beta rays, and gamma rays. Uh, they talked about, talk about acnic rays and all these different types of rays, heat rays and light rays that are there. Some rays can be seen but not felt. Some can be felt and not seen. Some can neither be felt nor seen, but they, but they still give off heat. You know, God is light, and in Him is no darkness, just like the sun. The light of the world comes from the sun. The sun is in darkness without, uh, the world is in darkness without the sun. This world is spiritually dark without the S-O-N. And the S-O-N is the light of the world. The heat rays that you can feel but can't see is a type of God, the Holy Spirit. The light rays are rays that you can see but not feel. That's a picture of God the Son. The acnic rays are rays that cannot be felt or seen. Is a picture of God the Father who can neither be seen nor felt. But we can feel the Holy Spirit and not see Him. We can see Jesus one day. We can't see Him now except by faith. But we'll see Him face to face. And so the Son itself is a type of the second coming of Jesus Christ and is a type of Jesus Christ. You know, someone said from 6 a.m. or thereabouts till about 6 p.m. or thereabouts, the gospel is preached around the world from light, uh, from the sun up to sundown. And when that sun dies at night, do you know when it sets, it sets a blood red. Do you know when it rises, it rises a blood red. It's a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sun is buried below the horizon, but is resurrected after the darkness of the night. And when the sun comes up in the morning, there's light in the world. And listen, one of these days, the sun's coming up in the morning. We used to sing that song. The sun's coming up, just like the S-U-N's coming up, the S-O-N's coming up. That sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And you know, the Bible says, as lightning shineth out of the east and unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That's why they used to bury folks uh, facing the east, because the Bible says that Jesus is coming from the east to the west. And so the picture of the movement of the sun across the horizon, across this earth, is a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ from the east to the west, and he's coming back one day. I want you to look real quick in Isaiah chapter 63. Look at this powerful, powerful chapter of the book of Isaiah. 
chapter number 63. And here in Isaiah chapter 63, in fact, all of Isaiah, uh, for example, Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus Christ, prophetically about him. Well, I want you to look at Isaiah 63. Here's your picture of Jesus if you want it tonight. Here's your picture of Jesus Christ that CNN and NBC and ABC and CBS and Fox News and I'm sure that the UN and the United Nations and, and, and all of these organizations don't want to hear about. The ecumenical movement don't want to hear about. And the National Council of Christian Churches don't want to hear about. Is Isaiah 63, verse number 1, describing the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Who is he that cometh from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. It's a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. Who is he that cometh? This isn't the first coming of Jesus. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ tonight. Verse 2, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, just like the sun comes up blood red, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat, just like someone stopping on grapes, and they're covered in the color of that, the grapes. Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people that there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is, my, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury upheld me. And verse 6, And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and I'll make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring them down uh, in their strength to the earth. Folks, it's a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come the second time in, the, in, a, in a little manger. He doesn't come the, uh, as he came the first time, away in a manger, no crying he makes. He doesn't come the first time just giving the little beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. When he comes the second time, he comes in power and in glory and in majesty and in might and in honor. And either you're on his side or you're not on his side. And those that are not on his, his side, the Bible says he's going to reject them. And the word that will proceed out of his mouth, he will destroy his enemies. The picture is there in the picture of the word of God and the picture of the blood that is there. Let me show you another passage tonight. Look in uh, Psalms chapter 19. Go back to Psalms, chapter number 19. Do you know that a lot of the Psalms, in fact, I'd say the vast majority of Psalms, are prophetic. David's the only man in the Bible outside of Jesus that pictures Jesus as a prophet and priest and king, the threefold ministry of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, prophet, priest, and king. Some men were priests but weren't prophets and weren't kings. Some were kings but were not priests or prophets. Uh, some were prophets but were not priests. But you know, Jesus was a prophet. He is our great high priest, and he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. David was a prophet, a priest, and a king. But in Psalms chapter 19, we all know verse number 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, what's out in the heavens? The sun, the moon, the stars, as we're reading about in Revelation. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. That's space, outer space, uh, interstellar space, 
uh, declares the glory of God in his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth his speech. Every day that we live is God speaking. Day unto day uttereth speech. Listen to nature. Listen to what, what the world's telling us out there in the world that God made. And it's witnessing to the glory and majesty of God Almighty. Neither the night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. What voice? The voice of nature. The voice of, uh, of space and of the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that. Their line has gone out to all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. This is important. The sun is in a tabernacle. The Bible says our body is a tabernacle. The heavens are a type of the tabernacle. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, there is a heavenly tabernacle. Moses was commanded to make the earthly tabernacle as a picture of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple that is there. The sun, verse 4, verse 5, which is as a what? A bridegroom, masculine, coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His, that's the sun, going forth is from the end of the heaven. His circuit are the ends of it. There's nothing hid from the heat thereof. And then he gets into all the rest of the description about the law of the Lord. Folks, that, that sun out there is not just a, a way of getting heat and light. It is a voice. It is a witness. It is a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ every single night and every single morning. It is a reminder of the resurrection and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17 and verse 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and of death. The keys in the Bible are symbolic. I believe there's actual physical keys. Believe it or not, there are compartments. Uh, Job's, uh, and uh, one of the greatest examples is Jonah talks about hell with her bars is about him. Uh, there's many references to hell having bars and having gates and having doors. Uh, we read about a bottomless pit in Revelation chapter number 20 verse 1 where there is a key to that bottomless pit. It's locked, but one day it'll be unlocked. We read about the keys of the kingdom. Knowledge is like something that is locked and is unlocked. You're not going to have knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord unlocked to you by your own effort, by your own means, by getting a seminary education or a secular education or by your own merit. The, the wisdom that God gives is not of this world. He gives wisdom and imparts it through the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that that wisdom and knowledge in the Scripture is locked or unlocked to you. The keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. The keys of knowledge in Luke eleven fifty two. The keys of David, that's those covenantal promises that are still valid, by the way, tonight. When God makes a promise, He doesn't break His promise. Some promises are, are, uh, are breakable, uh, and some of them have stipulations. But there are certain promises. For example, the promise of everlasting life through Jesus Christ is unbreakable. Nothing can break that promise that God's made to you. We are saved. We are safe. We are secure in Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit of God, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. 
So there are keys of David in Isaiah 22, verse 22. There's keys of hell and death in Revelation 1 and verse number 18. So those keys are there. Revelation 19 speaks about I'm he that liveth. Uh, let's see the things he says in verse 18. I'm he that liveth. That's past, uh, present, and was dead, past, and am alive forevermore, present and future. Verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen, that's past. The things which are, that's present. The things which shall be hereafter. The past historically and the past spiritually are very similar, but they're not the same thing. For example, the past could represent just John's existence, but it also represents Revelation 1, Revelation 2, and Revelation 3. Those churches as we sit here tonight are no longer in existence. That's the past. But they were John's present. But now the present would be Revelation 4 through verse 9, uh, chapter 19. And so we're entering that present stage of prophetic fulfillment. We are on the brink of that fulfillment before our very eyes, but there'll be a future fulfillment in chapters 20, 21, and 22. In verse number 20, the mystery which the, uh, of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angel of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So here's the description. Here's the way to understand what he gives in the vision of chapter 13, 14, and 15. I mentioned before last week at our study on Sunday, he walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Uh, there's several artist representations that I have in my collection that I wanted to show you. I don't know if you can see these tonight or not. I believe I've got it reversed so you can see it. Well, I don't think there's text, so it won't matter. But here's an artist's description or, or uh, illustration of Jesus Christ in the midst of the seven candlesticks. He's got the stars in his right hand. And he's going to describe them here at the end of verse 20. And he's going to tell us that these stars are the angels of the seven churches. But he's in the midst, verse 13, of the seven candlesticks that are there. Here's another one that I've got that I think uh, uh, is very, very vivid and beautiful. A description of Jesus walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks. He's in the midst of them. And each one of these represent the churches that are there. And so I want us to think about those as we think about verse number 20. Because the mystery is only revealed to a believer. The world can't make any sense of this. Heads or tails of it. But when we're saved, these are mysteries that were given throughout the New Testament and given to John and given to Paul. And now those mysteries are revealed to us. And so the mystery, verse 20, of the seven stars is no longer a mystery to us. There are angels, angelic representations of the seven churches that were there. And the churches, he said, are, are like a candle. Candles that are on fire are burning or the candle is out and they're no longer burning. They're either hot and on fire for God, or they're lukewarm and they're what we call apostate. That ushers us into the next part of Revelation in chapter number 2. So let's go ahead and look in chapter number 2 in verse number 1. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, 
And thou hast tried them which say they were apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. We'll stop at verse number 3. Here he says that there is an angel under the angel of the church. On this case, on the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the first of the seven churches that are there. So these seven churches in chapter 2 and 3 were physical churches that literally existed. But I also believe that these churches are representative spiritually of the seven church ages before the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in verse number 1, he speaks about the angel under the church. And now there's a lot about angelology that's out there. And you can buy a lot of books on it. I've got everything from some deep theological studies on angelology to uh, books like Billy Graham's uh, Book of Angels and what he talks about angels. Folks, your best book, your best textbook on angels is the book, the Bible. If you want to know about angels, study the Bible. And the easiest ways, way to do that is just get a good concordance. In the back of most of your study Bibles, you'll have a concordance back there. Look up the word angel and just start reading about angels. And don't let a lot of outside influence influence you to what angels are and what they do. For example, the most common, I'm talking about 99%, the most common definition of angel is always messenger. An angel is a messenger. And folks, that's just not the case. Because many, many times in the Bible where angels appear, they, that's what they are. They're an appearance. They're not just messenger. They don't have something to say. They have something to do. Uh, there's so, so many examples of that. For example, there's an angel in Luke chapter 4 uh, that is not a messenger. He's a helper. There's an angel in Daniel chapter 12. He's not a messenger. He's a fighter. Uh, there's a group of angels in Matthew chapter 24 that come at the second coming of Jesus Christ. They're not messengers. They're witnesses. Uh, there's an angel in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 35 that are not messengers. They, they're, they, this angel in particular, this one, kills 85,000 Assyrian enemies that were there. Uh, one angel is able to kill 85,000. We read in Revelation that there's angels, believe it or not, that are in the Euphrates River that are there holding back certain moments. We'll get to that later uh, when we get to those passages where God gives them commands of things to do and they do what God tells them to do. And so they're not messengers. They're not saying anything. They're doing something that God tells them to do. Uh, angels in the Bible never are women. Sorry, ladies, but every reference of the Bible, in the Bible to angel, there never, there's not a single reference to an angel appearing as a woman. They always appear as men, and usually young men. Uh, it never says that angels have wings in the Bible. But every time we see angels, we draw them, we, uh, we see them painted, we see little figurines like my wife has collected over the years, they always have wings on them. But there's not a single reference in the Old Testament or the New Testament to an angel having, uh, uh, having wings on their back. A lot of misconceptions about angels. So stick to what the Bible has to say, and you'll turn out all right. But here's what we know. We know from Revelation that there, at least in those seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor, there was an angelic representation of that church before the throne of God. There, Jesus Christ walks in the midst of those seven candlesticks, in the midst of those churches that were there. He walks in the midst of the churches. 
We could go deep into this tonight, and I'm not going to do that. But the candlestick, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that it is symbolic there in the tabernacle and in the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And it is instrumental. It is absolutely essential that the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ work in harmony and in unity in the center of the church, in all that we say, in all that we are, in all that we do. From the pulpit to the pew, Jesus must be the center. The Holy Spirit must move and work in the local New Testament church and in each and every believer in the New Testament church. So before God's face in heaven is a representative of every church. The church of Ephesus is the early, what we call the apostolic church. It's the church of the apostles. I'm talking about the original 11 disciples, the 11 dis uh, apostles that were there. Obviously, Judas went out and killed himself. He hung himself. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 1 that, uh, that he actually hung himself over a cliff tied his, uh, a, a, a rope around his neck to a branch and fell headlong and his bowels burst asunder. And it gives us in, in very detailed information what happened to Judas. And the Bible says he went to his own place. They elect a replacement for him in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And that man becomes someone that we almost don't hear about at all. A man by the name of uh, Matthias or Matthias, however you want to pronounce his name. But this is the, the continuation of the disciples uh, I'm talking about Peter and James and John and those that were there. And then towards the end, we see uh, uh, Paul being an apostle born out of due season. This age lasted historically from A.D. 33 to about A.D. 200. So about 170 years or so. This age, we can look at in history, and it dies out with the death of the first and the last of those apostles that were there. Ephesus means fully purposed. This church is a purposed church. They are purposed. They were determined. Uh, I mean, we read in Acts about this church. We read about the writings uh, to Thessalonica, uh, the writings of the church at Ephesus, and all of those letters uh, to the church at Rome in the New Testament would be part of this early church that was there. Verse number 2, the Bible says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and hast tried them which say they are Jews and are, uh, say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. Uh, this church was an intolerant church in a good way. I'm going to tell you something tonight, not to, to stir any hornet's nest, but the church needs to be tolerant in many ways where the church is intolerant and we need to be intolerant in many ways where the church has become too tolerant. There are certain things where we need to, as the Bible says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. There are certain things we should, like that song says, I shall not be moved. The Bible says, stand therefore. And having girt about all the, the whole armor of God, stand. Having done all, stand. There are certain things we ought to stand upon. And what we're seeing in our age is the church is no longer standing up, standing up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross, but we're compromising and we're giving in to the demands of the world and the flesh and the devil. Where the stance ought to always be the word of God. We have to always line ourselves up with what thus saith the word of God and don't give an inch. Now we give not only an inch, we give our whole, our whole belief system. 
And here in verse number 2, we find a church that was not tolerant of false teaching and false doctrine. This was a working church, a, a laboring church. He says, Thou canst not stand them uh, uh, which say they are apostles and are not. We use that term apostle very loosely in our day and age. We see on the news or we'll see on the internet, apostle this or apostle that, apostle Ben Pierce. Well, you're not going to see that one. But this apostle and that apostle. You need to understand tonight that an apostle had to follow certain specific qualifications in Scripture. I'm not going to take time tonight to show you that, but if you go back to Acts chapter number 1, speaking about the death of, uh, uh, of Judas and uh, the replacement, the need for a twelfth to replace him, we see the qualifications in Acts chapter number 1 for an apostle. They didn't just go any, many, mighty, mo and pick an apostle out. They had to find those that met the spiritual, biblical, scriptural, Holy Spirit qualifications. They had to have been uh, men that were full of the Holy Ghost, but they had to have been men that had continued throughout the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, beginning at the baptism of John. They had to see him in his resurrected body. You say, well, what about Paul? Paul himself says, I'm an apostle born out of due season. God made a special revelation for Paul. God made a special exception to the rule for Saul who became Paul. That's why he said, I'm born out of due season. He said, I'm not fit to be an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles. He said, I, I wasn't there, but God allowed me to, to be kind of engrafted into the apostleship uh, to the Gentiles. But by the way, Paul did see Jesus in his resurrected form. He saw him on the road to Damascus. There he saw the Lord. That's why he was blind for three days. And uh, until those scales of blindness were lifted. And the Lord met him there and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, uh, he said uh, It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks to Saul. And Saul became Paul. And God changed him and changed his name and changed him spiritually to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So all this talk about all these people claiming to be apostles is a bunch of nonsense. There's no scriptural support for it at all. It's just a man-made title. The true apostles from about 33 A.D. to 200 A.D. were those that had continued in Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his resurrection. And so you had people claiming to be apostles that weren't apostles. And the church, instead of tolerating it, they were intolerant towards it and said no. They resisted those false teachings. And verse number 3 and 4, he said, And has borne in patience, and for my name's sake has labored. That's spiritual work, spiritual labor. Has not fainted. Verse 4, Nevertheless, God has some criticism. He said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from which thou art fallen. Uh, and he said, and, and repent, and do the first works, or I'll come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So God says, there's some good things you do, some good things that are positive. But there's also some negative things that I've seen that I'm not real happy about. It's an easy three-point outline to remember. Re he says, remember, repent, or remove. He said, remember, therefore, from whence thou hast fallen. Repent, do the first works, and also I'll come unto thee quickly. Remove thy candlestick out of thy place. It's like blowing a candle out. He said, if you uh, don't uh, uh, repent, he said, I'll remove you out of your place unless you repent. And so we see that he had someone against them for the things that they weren't doing that they should have been doing. Now, again, there's historical application to be made. There is, uh, there's doctrinal application and spiritual. 
Historically, this church literally existed. There was the church of Ephesus. We know where they were. You can see it on a map. That's the historical application. All these things were historically about them. Doctrinally, it's also about them as well. Doctrinally, uh, this church did these things, good and bad. Doctrinally, they had apostles or fake apostles come in amongst them. And God said that they were doing the right thing and trying to get them out and wouldn't tolerate them. But spiritually, these things can be applied to us tonight as well. Now, how can we make a spiritual application? Well, it's real simple. He talks about in verse number 4, Because us left thy first love. The relationship of a Christian to God is just like a relationship to a husband and a wife or, you know, a fiancé to, to their fiancé, to a boyfriend, to girlfriend, what have you. But more, more than anything, it's a, it's a covenantal relationship between like a husband and a wife. And that's why in the Old Testament, when Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do and they went after false gods, he said it was spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery that they committed. He said it's just like a, a wife stepping out on her husband. Israel stepped out on God and cheated on God with false gods. All those false gods that they set up and worshiped those images. He said, I want your love and affection alone. Well, this is the same thing in this church, the church of Ephesus. He said, he said remember thy first love. Uh, he said, remember what it was when you were first in love with me. And he said, your love for me is not like it was at the beginning. Well, husbands, wives, if you got a, a fiancé tonight, never forget those first emotions, those first feelings, those first moments of affection. How you were head over heels, as we say it, for that person. Why you couldn't wait to see them. You couldn't wait to hear their voice. You couldn't wait to get cleaned up and go out with them. You couldn't wait to hold their hands. You couldn't wait to go to a movie or go out to eat with them. And uh, I mean, the, even you guys... Uh, you men out there used to take a shower and put deodorant on and cologne on and you did your hair and, and you would open up the door for your girlfriend or for your fiancé or if it was your new wife. Uh, and uh, I mean, you just were, were such a gentleman and, and then some years have come and gone. You say, what's happened? Well, I've been married for a while now. Now you don't care as much. And now everything she says or everything he says just annoys the snot out of you. I mean, you can't get along over anything anymore, and you don't get cleaned up, and you don't uh, for uh, for him, and you don't go out and do anything anymore, and you don't go out on a date anymore. You say, "Well, I've just got over it." Do you know the same thing spiritually is true with Christians tonight? The same thing is true with our churches in America tonight is when you got saved, you were on fire for God, and you had a, a holy passion for God. You had a passion for church. No one had to call you up on Saturday night and remind you to get to God's house Sunday morning. Well, you were the first one there. No one had to tell you that you needed to pray. You couldn't wait to talk to God in prayer. You, no one had to force the Bible on you. Why, well, you couldn't get enough of reading the Bible and studying it and, and reading over it and praying about it. And You were just in love with your Heavenly Father, but you got over it. And God says, remember your first love. Remember, that's your warning. And repent, number two, that's the example. Repent, that's the warning. Or else I'll remove your candlestick out of your place. He said, if you don't want to be on fire for me, I'll go ahead and blow it out and I won't be there anyway. Verse number five, verse number six Verse number five, he gives that warning in verse number six, but again, he gives them a, a, a you know, he, he commends them in verse number six. He said, For this thou hast, 
But thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He mentions the Nicolaitans. Now, for some of the younger generation, or maybe I should say the older generation, he didn't say Nicolodians. He said Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans comes from a Greek word that is what we call transliterated, meaning they left it untranslated. There's no English equivalent for the word Nicolaitan. So it, when you say Nicolaitan, you're actually uh, transliterating, you're actually saying a Greek phrase or a Greek word. And it comes from two words. The first part is Nikeo, and the second part is Laos. Now, I don't Greek and Hebrew a lot of stuff, and most people that hear me teach know that, but this is important in this, in this place. Nikeo and Laos, or Laos, together is Nicolaitans. Nicolaos. And Nikeo means to conquer or means to be over. And Laos means laity or the common, everyday, ordinary people. And so when you put these two words together, what this word means is that the, the religious people, the Nikeo, were conquering the laity. That's the common people. This was something done to where they would say, well, you know, because I've been a Christian longer, or because I know Paul, or I knew Peter, or I knew John, uh, uh, whatever it was, I know more than you, I'm closer to God than you are, and so they put a, 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 a way of conquering the people. It was a, a, not just a social warfare, it was a spiritual class of, uh, uh, just like in the military, of rank, where they were ranking above the common people, saying, unless you're, you know what I know, you're just a common, everyday, ordinary believer, and so I'm greater than you, I'm higher than you, I'm over you, I'm above you. Sound like anything you're familiar with tonight? Do you know the Roman Catholic Church set this system up as well for the last 2,000 years? And I don't say that to be critical, but I say it to be historically accurate and honest. And so that's why most of their masses have always been in Latin, is because the average common everyday ordinary person doesn't understand Latin. So the ones that do, the priests, the cardinals, all the leaders in the church, they had a way of oppressing and suppressing the people. They've got an access and a knowledge to God that the common people doesn't have. Uh, that happened also to the Bible. They didn't want the Bible to be translated into the common man's language. The Bible you hold in your hand is there against the wishes of the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted the Bible only for the church leaders and only for the religious leaders and for the priests. And the common man or woman wasn't allowed to have access to the Bible. That's one of the great reasons for the Protestant Reformation was so that you and I can have access to God and to God's Holy Word. Now let me put it into modern uh, times. I believe this same thing is going on in our Baptist churches because what's going on now is seminary, which I have a seminary education. I have six earned degrees, by the way, and a Bible college education. Education has become a God in our Baptist churches, and I know amongst other evangelical denominations as well. 
And so you've got to go to seminary, and you've got to go to Bible college, and you've got to go to the right seminary, and the right Bible college, and you've got to know Hebrew, and you've got to know Greek, and you've got to have the right education. Because if you know, if you've got the right degrees, then you're in with the in crowd, but if you don't have it, then you're not. Folks, I cannot tell you how many times as a preacher, I've been introduced to a, 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 a Baptist leader, or another preacher, and the first thing they ask me is not, when was I saved? Or when was I baptized? Or tell me about your call to preach. It was, where did you go to Bible college? Where did you go to seminary? And uh, do you know that's one of the things that aggravated me to death? So it motivated me to get an education, not because I necessarily thought I needed it, because I got tired of them always telling me and asking me, well, where did you go? And where did you go? And do you have this education or not? Now they're doing it, with, doing it with Greek and Hebrew. And yes, I've taken Greek and I've taken Hebrew. But I don't stand in the pulpit and say, well, the Greek word is this and the Hebrew word is this all the time. Why? Because that's similar to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's saying, I know something you don't know. And since I know something you don't know, the only way you're going to know it is if you trust me to tell you what it says. God's word is not set up that way. God's Word is set up so that every man and every woman, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your social standing, regardless of your educational level, every one of you has the same access to God and the same access to the Word of God. And you can know God's Word just as much, and I believe more so, than anyone that's been to Bible college or seminary. God tells them here in this passage that they are to not... Uh, except the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In verse number 7, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so the Spirit obviously is the Holy Spirit. And when he says that, it's a very familiar phrase. Jesus used to say it in the Gospels, that him that hath an ear, let him hear. Meaning, if you can hear, you better listen. You better listen and get this and better understand this. This is something that everybody that can hear ought to be able to understand. In verse number 7, he gives a promise to him that overcometh. Will I eat, give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so there is a tree of life, and we'll get to that later on in Revelation. And so history is going to wind up where it began. It began in a garden. It's going to wind up in a garden. There's a tree of life in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's a tree of life. In Revelation chapter, well, here in Revelation 1, but also in chapter 20, 21, and 22. Now look, if you would, in verse number 8, we get to the church of Smyrna. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Again, as he said earlier, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So we looked at the church there, the first church of Ephesus, and we look at verse 8, the church of Smyrna. Now, the first church also planted the seeds of false doctrine. And so there's false doctrine that begins to enter in. If you want to know more about that, study the book of Galatians. Because Galatians talks about the false gospels and false beliefs that were, being, uh, that were infiltrating the early church. 
So this is continuing through the church there of Ephesus, even to the church next of Smyrna. And Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh means bitterness, or it means death or affliction. And this church is a highly persecuted church. It's like if we read the book of Acts. We see, yes, Stephen was stoned, and we see that James is martyred. But for the most part, we see a, a protective hand is upon the church. And we see that with much power and boldness, the Word of God is spreading. And the Word of God is multiplying. And so eventually, they, here comes a, just a couple of Christians. And, the, and that's where they were first called Christians at Antioch. They were called believers or disciples or apostles. And here they said, here comes those that turn the world upside down. Well, all of a sudden, the gospel's spreading like wildfire. But by the time we see the church of, uh, of Smyrna pop up, now there's great persecution there in this church age. This is a persecuted church. And the devil believed throughout history if he could kill the church or if he could persecute the church, the church would stop. But remember the promise of Jesus Christ to Simon Peter. He said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan thinks if I persecute the church, I'll kill it. But it seems like the more the church has been persecuted, the greater it's, it's grown. Here's a great example of that tonight. Throughout this quarantine of the last whatever it's been, 40 plus days of quarantine, no doubt the devil thinks I can silence the church, I'll kick them out of their buildings they can't meet, they can't worship, they can't have a Wednesday night Bible study prayer meeting, they can't have their revivals and singing and gospel singing, they can't have Sunday morning, Sunday night worship. And many of us were just absolutely just distraught, but then we realized, hey, we can meet in a parking lot, and we can live stream a Bible study, and now I don't think the devil clearly thought this thing, thought this thing through, because now the gospel is spread even further than it was before the quarantine. Now the gospel is being all over, preached all over Facebook and all over YouTube. And now we see that, that live streams, even some of these, are being watched by our friends and our Christian family in India and Pakistan and, and Australia. And, and uh, I mean, all over the world. Uh, literally, I have people telling me the Philippines and, and uh, just all over people are watching our broadcast with our little church at Mount Springs Baptist in Monroe, North Carolina. It's connecting Christians globally. The Word of God is being spread globally. And we're just one little drop of water in the ocean of all the churches that are doing the same thing. Uh, I see some of my friends, like Rizwan, is watching even now. And he's spreading the gospel in spite of the lockdown that he's been in. Uh, and we see so many of them are getting the gospel out. Even as I speak, and they're spreading the gospel. And that's what happened under this persecuted church. This church lasts from about 200 A.D. to 325 A.D. There is a book that should be in every Christian's collection, uh, every Christian's library. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, Fox's, F-O-X-X-E-S, I believe is how it's spelled, but Fox's. His last name was Fox. Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is one of the books, one of the two books that the pilgrims came over uh, uh, on the Mayflower with. When they went to Plymouth Rock and all, they brought these two books, a copy of the Bible and a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs with them. When they came to the New World, because they wanted their children to understand and to know about what their forefathers 
had went through. Do you know many of the translators of the King James Bible? They had mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and, and nephews and nieces and cousins and friends and neighbors who were tortured and sawn in half and burned at the stake for trying to get the Word of God into your hands. That type of persecution was going on uh, in 200 to 325 A.D. And yet we know very little about it in our day. We think we're persecuted today because somebody on Facebook said a comment to us that we didn't appreciate or they made fun of us there at work or at the grocery store because they said we we're a holy roller or, or a Bible thumper or something like that. Well, folks, during this time is when the horrible atrocities of persecution affected this church period. It's during this time where people literally were, uh, were crucified and, and, and were uh, burned at the stake and were hung and, and were, had their tongues cut out and body parts amputated while they're still alive and sewed into sacks of, of rattlesnakes and thrown into the river and drowned slowly. And every wicked, ungodly form of torture was brought against the church during this time. And yet, the Bible says the Word of God continued to grow. And it began, to, in fact, some of those, as we read in Fox's Book of Martyrs during that time, some of those that were fed to the lions in the Colosseums and places like that, their persecutors, their, their bodyguards, or, or executioners, I should say, were converted because they saw the strength of faith to those that were martyred, and their belief in Jesus Christ led to their salvation, which led to someone else's salvation. You can't stamp out Christianity. You can't kill it all. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. Look in verse number 9. He talks about in verse number 9, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, because he said uh, uh, of them, he said, which say they are Jews. He said they, they go around claiming to be physical Jews, not spiritual Israel, but, but physical Jews. It's during this time, 200 to 325 A.D., where a lot of post-millennial thought began to infiltrate the body of Christ. They claimed to be not just spiritual Israel, like in Romans 2, but physical Israel. You need to understand briefly tonight that in Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. There is no longer divisions of gender and races or anything like that when it comes to salvation. Salvation is for any man that will come unto me. Whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and shall be saved. Uh, if any man will take up his cross and follow me, if any man will, uh, the Bible says, uh, whosoever will drink of the water of life freely, it is to the whole world, anyone can be saved. But the gospel came to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But in Jesus Christ now we're, we're one. But that doesn't negate the fact that God still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. Behind me on the chart, all of the tribulation period, the, the central focal point of it all is Jerusalem, is Israel. The Antichrist, the satanic trinity, the false prophet has to do with Israel. The two witnesses that will come and witness during that time, has to do with Israel. The temple and the abomination of desolation has to do with Israel. Everything is going to be dealing with the Gentiles. That's why the Bible says that in Romans 11, 25 and 26, that the fullness 
of the Gentiles has to come in. There is a division prophetically between the Gentiles and the times of Israel, the times of the Jews. So there is a physical Jew and there's a spiritual promise that applies maybe to all of us, but that doesn't take away from the fact that God still has covenants and promises with Israel. And all of this uh, uh, replacement theology where now the church has replaced Israel is not of God. In fact, in verse number 9, he says it's of Satan. It's of Satan to claim that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now your promises and mine as Gentiles. He said, it's blasphemy in verse number 9. He said, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan. He repeats this twice in Revelation. Uh, and, uh, and we'll look at that later in, in verse number, chapter 3, verse 17, I believe it is. Look in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Speaking of the church of the Laodiceans, here's the similarity between these two churches. In verse 9, we read about a church in Revelation chapter 2. He said that thou art rich. But in, in Revelation 3.17, we find a church that's poor, but thinks they're rich. In Revelation 3.17, there's a church that says it's rich, and God says it's poor. But in Revelation 2, verse 9, the church says it's poor, and God says it's rich, meaning that not everything that is physical and monetary means that it is spiritual, and that it's of God. This is a witnessing church. This is a martyr church. This is a church that the Christians were taken out to the Colosseums. This is the church where they were tied to the stake and strangled to death. This is a church where they were drowned and thrown into the river. He said, I know thy blasphemy of Satan. He said, uh, uh, he said, I know what's going on. He said, but you did the right thing in withstanding them. Folks, I'm going to wrap up tonight with that passage there. We've got so much more to get into the chapter 2. And chapter 2 and 3 will go quicker than I, I think they will, but, uh, but I've got to make some progress with some things that I want to pull over and park at our next study about all of this dealing with Israel versus the Gentile church because it's one of the things I see and hear so much right now. On, uh, you know, in, in Christian circles, I, I see books at Lifeway and preachers standing up claiming that all the promises now to Israel to the church, and it's simply not so. So we need to see that because this church in verse number 10 is going to receive a crown. And I want us to think about those crowns. And if you look at the chart up here, I don't know if you can see it or not, but here are the five crowns that are mentioned in the Bible. The crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, and the incorruptible crown. And those crowns are going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And so physically, these churches existed historically. But doctrinally, God has these things to say to them. But spiritually, it applies to us. And what we can take away from that tonight is simply this. We are not to apply to us scripture that does not apply to us. We are not to claim promises that do not apply to us. And we are never to uh, allow false teaching and false doctrine to infiltrate the body of Christ. We are to resist it at all costs, even if it means our life. And uh, what a great lesson for us to think about and to pray about in the times that we're living in when churches are so quickly caving in and giving in to the world, the flesh, and the devil instead of what thus saith the word of God. 
Thank you for being patient tonight and listening to this little more than an hour of a Bible study on chapter number one and getting into chapter number two of Revelation. We're going to finish chapter number two at our next study. And uh, keep watching our, our page and my page as I'll be making a, uh, announcements about our church services indoors or outdoors. But we'll continue to live stream, Lord willing, as much as we can. Thank you again for your prayers. We lift each of you up before the Lord tonight in prayer. May God bless you all richly tonight. And let's keep lifting our head up and looking for the redemption and the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you all. Have a blessed night.